Welcome everyone to episode 32 of Curseland, an anthology show about strange happenings, curious folk, and small towns. I am your host and sole proprietor of Curseland, which can be found at www.curse.land. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Let's get started. want to get high tonight? Scott was bordering on junkie status, and I was always wary about spending time with him, normally in the filthy apartment of some dealer friend while he shot up. It seemed like he was bordering on a collapse, and I was scared of doing the same. I don't know. What are you thinking? On the other hand, I had been despondent since breaking up with Ruth. Maybe something to take my mind off the pain would help. I knew she was better off without me. I was just holding her back. Meet me at Jared's. He said he wants to try something new. This made me feel a little better. Jared was probably the nicest dealer Scott knew, and his stuff was generally sourced well. Plus, his apartment was at least somewhat clean. You know I don't fuck with needles. Yeah, man, it's fine. Nothing like that. I showed up at 8 with three beers in my system that had failed to calm the nervous energy I was feeling. Whatever. It's fine. It's going to be fine. Jared was happy to see me and poured me a whiskey. I felt a little weird and sat down at the table. He put three black pills down in front of us. I got this from a trusted contact overseas, he began. Said it's like nothing else. He smiled. Thought the three of us could test drive it before I put in an order. See if it's really worth it. Stuff's called forever. Scott laughed and downed a pill. Jared and I followed suit. I sat down and stared at the TV, waiting for it to kick in. It was fine. I felt really mellow, and sort of like the room, and me with it was stretching in a weird way. We all wound up falling asleep. I woke up the next day feeling fine, and we parted ways. No big deal. Certainly nothing life-changing. Years passed. I never left town, never really did anything. Could never kick smoking cigarettes, either. Wasn't a surprise when the doc told me the blood I was coughing up was cancer. Shit. Too late to do anything. I was alone when I took my last breath. I woke up back in Jared's apartment, sun streaming through the window. What the fuck? I hallucinated an entire sad life? What was that drug? I mumbled something at Jared and Scott and walked outside. What a weird dream. I decided I could do more. Maybe that was a wake-up call. Applied to a job I didn't think I was qualified for and got it. Stopped screwing around. Quit smoking. Married a nice girl. Had a kid who loved to play ball outside. He didn't even see the truck coming the day he chased his ball into the street. But I did. Probably never moved that fast in my life. Fast enough to push him out of the way. Not fast enough to get myself out of the way. Oh well. What a way to go protecting someone you love. I woke up in Jared's apartment. Fuck me. What the hell was happening? I had to short circuit this. I must still be tripping. I decided to throw myself off the bridge down the street. When I got there, I found I physically couldn't do it. Something stopped me, so killing myself was out. I had to go home and figure this out. I wasn't paying attention as I walked up the stairs of my apartment. If I had, I would have noticed the neighbor's kid had left a toy car on one of them. When I slipped and tumbled, I knew it was going to be bad. I woke up in Jared's apartment. Maybe this could be fun. However long this lasts, I can do anything and it's not real. Like lucid dreaming, but it lasts for decades. I tried a life of crime. Got shot coming out of an electronics store. Not cut out for that. It hurt like hell. Screwed around. Partied too much. Overdosed. Back to Jared's when it all goes to hell. I had lived ten or twelve lifetimes when I saw her. Ruth. It might seem weird to have forgotten her, but you have to remember we had broken up probably three hundred years before. She was older. Divorced. Sad. She married the wrong guy after our breakup got abused for years. 
I was so depressed after our talk that I just walked for hours thinking about how sad her life had turned out. I had thought I was helping her. Found myself in a rough neighborhood. When I got jumped, I didn't hand over my wallet. That was a mistake. I woke up in Jared's apartment. This time, I could fix it. I bought a bunch of flowers and went to Ruth's. She took me back. We got married, had a family. We traveled the world, best friends. It was incredible. The best life I ever had. I died a happy old man, surrounded by family. I woke up in Jared's apartment. I bought a bunch of flowers and went to Ruth's. If I'm stuck in this Groundhog Day shit, I know what to do. You know what isn't boring? Living the best goddamn life you can. Twice. Three times. Ten times. The rough edges get smoothed away. You learn when bad news is coming, when you need to sidestep a bad argument, just absolute happiness. If you get to choose happiness, you choose it. Every damn time. Then one day, we were in Paris, celebrating our 30th anniversary. I'd taken this trip with her 20 times. She walked down to the cafe to get me some breakfast. A car jumped the sidewalk and killed her. That had never happened before. The next lifetime was worse. We made it 12 years after our wedding before she got some weird flu variant and died. The next one, she was diagnosed with cancer a year after marriage. We never had kids. The next one, her building had burned down the night I spent at Jared's. I stood outside with flowers in my hand, staring at the smoking ruins. A filthy old homeless man walked up next to me as I stared in disbelief. Thought you could cheat it, did you? He said. Thought he wouldn't notice, but he did. He started laughing as he walked away, but he did. I watched him as he walked away. He turned back from time to time to smile at me. My lives turned dark. Friends were killed in horrible accidents. Serial killers struck peaceful towns and ravaged the families of those I loved. Overdose, disease, murder, death, everything was wrong. The world turned, too. Dictators came to power. Wars broke out. Hatred rose. Cities burned. Countries shattered. The world bled. The old man would appear from time to time, though centuries would sometimes pass between sightings. He always laughed at me, told me that he had me now, always smiled at me. I drifted from one dying port town to the next, finding work where I could, drinking away shitty lifetime after shitty lifetime. I was sitting in a bar in the capital of East Scotland, watching some cable news about a genocide in some country that hadn't even existed in most of my lifetimes. The bartender laughed, and I looked at him clearly for the first time. It was the old man. He smiled at me. Who the fuck are you? I growled. I've seen him longer than you. He sees you now. He laughed again. Where do I go to find him? He laughed. Go to Samar in the Philippines. Not now, in your next life, when you're still young. Find Beringen. He waits for you there. He smiled at me, and I stumbled for the door. I lived another dozen years before a boat I was on went down in a storm. I woke up in Jared's apartment. This time, I immediately started looking for a way to get to the Philippines. I sold my car and walked to work for six months, eating the cheapest food I could find. I arrived, confused. Turns out, Beringen isn't a real place. Or, maybe it is. I found work under the table, making money however I could. I asked about the invisible city of local folklore. I asked questions about the lore behind it. I learned how many people who've seen it are the victims of demonic possession. I searched for it, every chance I got. Years passed by. I lived an invisible life. Like the invisible city, I saw it. The world rotted away, but I still searched. One night, I was walking home and a car stopped next to me. I heard a familiar laugh through the window. I looked in and saw the old man. He smiled at me. I got in the car. We drove for hours. The gas gauge never moved. Finally, in the distance, I saw a gleaming city of light. He pulled over and gestured. 
You have to walk from here. He's waiting for you in the center of the city. He smiled. I got out and walked. It felt like I walked for days, but the sun never came up, and I never grew thirsty. I walked into a gleaming, deserted city. I felt drawn to a giant tower in the center of the city. It glowed with a light, despite having no windows or obvious source of illumination. I was not surprised to find a single door at the bottom of the tower. I entered and began to climb. As I went, I heard a voice, deep and old. I couldn't make out the words. I climbed forever, finally reaching a door. I opened it and stepped inside, facing a giant black abyss. The voice was everywhere now. Every word ripped me apart. I watched you cheat me. Did you think you could live your lies forever? I screamed. You're with me now. Forever. I destroyed this world. The abyss closed, and I realized I was staring at a giant mouth. It opened again. I thought of Ruth. The world went black. I woke up in the hospital. Scott jumped up from the chair in the corner. Oh, dude, I'm so glad you're awake. What happened? He looked over his shoulder. We were just about to take those pills, and you threw up all over them and then collapsed. You had a crazy fever. I looked around. How long have I been out? Four days. Ruth keeps chasing me out of here, thinks I did this. He glanced at his shoes. Nurses don't like me much either. Why is Ruth here? She's your emergency contact, dude. Hadn't left your side, even to go home and sleep. She's just getting coffee now. He paused and shifted awkwardly. Do you have any cash? Jared's kind of pissed you puked on his stuff. I heard an excited shriek and barely managed to turn my head as Ruth launched herself at me. I was in the hospital for another four days before getting discharged. Doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong with me, said it must have been a freak infection. Getting discharged was great. Ruth was picking me up and bringing me to Scott's so I could go with him to his first N.A. meeting. Seeing me almost die scared him and he was trying to straighten himself out. Then Ruth and I had a special date planned. Things were getting figured out. We were thrilled for another chance. I walked out to the curb and waited for Ruth to pull her car around. I stood there in the sunlight, feeling alive for the first time in, I guess, millennia. A nurse rolled another patient in a wheelchair out to the curb, locked his wheel, and walked outside. I felt a breeze on my face and smiled. The old man in the wheelchair laughed. I stared at him and he winked. He let you go. Make sure he doesn't get his teeth into you again. Then smiled at me. This time, I smiled back. And that was a story from the No Sleep subreddit. It's entitled, Forever, A Drug. And that was written by N.M. Wrights. Now a story entitled, Patent Medicine and the Popular Medicine Show. And this is from Legends of America. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, patent medicine became very popular for a variety of aches, ailments, and diseases. Often sold by traveling salespeople in what became known as medicine shows, these many decoctions were often sold with colorful names and even more colorful claims. Despite the name, patent medicine, these elixirs and tonics were rarely patented, with the exception of a few including castoria, and instead were often trademarked. In fact, chemical patents did not come into use in the United States until 1925. Also called proprietary medicines, these elixirs and tonics originated in England and were manufactured under grants, or patents of royal favor, to those who provided medicine to the royal family, hence the name. In the 18th century, these medicines began to be exported to America and were sold by a variety of merchants, including grocers, goldsmiths, drugstores, and even postmasters. Flourishing in the United States from the start, by the middle of the 19th century, the manufacture of patent medicines was a major industry in America. 
produced by large companies as well as small family operations, there were remedies for almost any ailment, including venereal diseases, tuberculosis, infant colic, digestive problems, female complaints, and even cancer. These many remedies were openly sold to the public in retail stores, by individual salesmen, and in what would develop into the traveling medicine show. The promotion of patent medicines was one of the first major products heavily displayed in the early advertising industry. During this time, numerous advertising and sales techniques were pioneered by patent medicine promoters. Often, these advertisements would promote exotic ingredients, even when their actual effects came from more common drugs. Branding of products became popular at this time in order to distinguish one medicine from its numerous competitors. Though most patent medicines were sold at high prices, they were generally made from cheap ingredients. Pharmacists who knew the composition of these remedies would often manufacture similar products and sell them at lower prices. To counteract this, branded medicine advertisements urged the public to accept no substitutes. One popular group of patent medicines, liniments and ointments, often promoted themselves as containing snake oil, which was thought to have been a cure-all at the time. This would eventually lead to the use of the term snake oil salesman, a lasting synonym for a charlatan. These medicines were very popular, even though many of them were laced with ample doses of alcohol, morphine, opium, or cocaine, and were advertised for babies and children, sometimes ending in tragic results. With no regulation on their often questionable ingredients, concerns began to grow about these medicines. Their effectiveness was also questionable and ingredients usually kept secret, leading to them being referred to as quack medicines. Just a few instances of high alcohol levels included Lydia Pinkham's women's tonic, which contained 19% alcohol, Dr. Kilmer's swamp root was 12%, and Hostetter's bitters an amazing 32%. From the beginning, many doctors and medical societies were critical of patent medicines, arguing that they did not cure illnesses, discouraged the sick from seeking legitimate treatments, and caused alcohol and drug dependency. More fierce resistance came from the temperance movement of the late 19th century, who loudly protested the use of alcohol in medicines. Resisting these criticisms, manufacturers established an organization for themselves called the Proprietary Association in 1881. The trade group of medicine producers, aided by the press, which had grown dependent on the money received from remedy advertising, fought bitterly against any type of regulation. However, in the end, their resistance would be overcome by the demand for safety, and in 1906, the Pure Food and Drug Act was enacted, which required manufacturers to list their ingredients on packaging labels and restricted misleading advertising. Later, in 1938, Another law required that manufacturers test their products for safety before marketing them, and in 1962, tests for effectiveness were required. Though many patent medicines were only a ruse, there were a few legitimate ones that delivered the promised results, such as Listerine, which was developed in 1879, Bayer Aspirin in 1899, Milk of Magnesia in 1880, Exlax in 1905, and Richardson's Croup and Pneumonia Cure Salve in the 1890s, which is now known as Vicks Vapor Rub. Another method of publicity taken to sell these many patent medicines was the ever-popular medicine show, which sometimes resembled a small traveling circus, complete with vaudeville-style entertainment, muscle man acts, magic tricks, and Native American and Wild West themes. These shows had their origins in the performances put on by traveling charlatans in the 14th century Europe when circuses and theaters were banned and performers had only the marketplace or patrons for support. Later, in colonial America, patent medicine vendors would set up booths at local fairs. As early as 1773, laws were being passed against their excesses. By the late 19th century, medicine shows flourished in the United States especially in the Midwest and the rural South. The medicine man, often called professor or sometimes doctor, was generally neither, but rather was a talented showman and storyteller. With the professor at the center, 
These medicine shows were often structured around entertainers who could be expected to draw a crowd of potential customers who would listen to and then purchase the miracle elixirs offered by the doctor. Much ado was made prior to these events, such as posters and banners displaying the time and place of the show and tickets of admission. Sometimes these shows were so large that halls or hotels were booked for the troops of entertainers, which might be enacted several times throughout the day and evening. However, most often, they were held right on the street, hopefully attracting every passerby. Often, these remedies and elixirs were manufactured and bottled in the same wagon in which the show traveled. Between entertainment acts, the professor would lecture the crowd about his miraculous elixir, mixing grandiose claims with interesting anecdotes and stories. Often, the audience was encouraged to join in with singing entertainers. Muscle man acts were especially popular in these shows in order to impress the crowd with the strength and vigor he obtained from a particular potion. During these presentations, the professor frequently employed shills who would step forward from the crowd and offer unsolicited testimonies about the benefits of the medicine for sale. Other plants within the audience who had an obvious affliction, such as a limp, would shuffle forward and challenge the medicine man and his claims. Amazingly, after the professor gave the individual a teaspoon of his magical elixir, the rube was suddenly cured. Though many, no doubt, knew that these antics were a bit unbelievable, they wanted to believe that this particular cure really worked. In addition to the mom-and-pop operations that wound their way through small towns and rural areas with their medicine wagons, there were several large manufacturers that presented medicine shows in a big manner. The most well-known of these was the Kickapoo Indian Medicine Company, headquartered in New Haven, Connecticut, far away from the Kickapoo tribe, who primarily lived on a reservation in Oklahoma at the time. Founded by non-Native Americans, John E. Doc Healy and Charles H. Texas Charlie Bigelow, the pair called their large headquarters building the Principal Wigwam. This building served as both a factory and living quarters for employees, as well as housing offices for the two owners. In 1881, Doc Healy, who owned a brokerage house in Boston, got the idea of promoting medical elixirs using Indian names, and the following year took on his partner, Charles Bigelow. Healy was in charge of hiring the performers, both Indians and white performers that included jugglers, acrobats, dancers, musicians, fire eaters, and more. Texas Charlie managed the medicine side of the business, as well as the doctors or professors who gave medical lectures. These two partners would send as many as 25 shows at a time across the country. During the shows, all the entertainers were in flamboyant costume, the Native Americans covered in feathers, colored beads, and often carrying crude weapons. The professors often wore tuxedo-style jackets, high silk hats, and clothing that displayed gold-studded buttons, glitter, silk, fringe, and more. According to the advertisements and the professors, the medicines sold were compounded according to secret ancient Kickapoo Indian tribal formulas. In fact, ingredients often did include herbs that were used by Native Americans, including bloodroot, feverwort, poke, slipriam, oak bark, and other natural products. Selling for 50 cents to a dollar per bottle, these medicines guaranteed to cure all manner of ailments. Company shows featured Native American-style entertainment, including horseback riding, powwows, dances, and invocations to various spirits in darkened tents. One popular product was Kickapoo Indian Sagwa, which was touted as blood, liver, and stomach regulator. This was said to have been based on a Native American herbal remedy, but in actuality, it was a mixture of alcohol, stale beer, and a strong laxative such as aloe. The Kickapoo Indian Sagwa would serve as the inspiration for Al Cap's Kickapoo Joy Juice, featured in the comic strip Little Abner. The company also sold several other patent medicines such as Kickapoo Indian Oil, Kickapoo Cough Cure, and Kickapoo Worm Remedy, claiming their basis in Indian herbal medicine. The benefit of claiming traditional native origins was that it was nearly impossible to disprove. One of the most popular performers in the Kickapoo Indian Medicine Show was a man named Dr. John Johnson. 
Though he looked, acted, and had the knowledge of an Indian medicine man, he was not of Indian heritage. However, for more than 20 years, he believed that he was. In actuality, he had been kidnapped from Saco, Maine's factory island by Mi'kmaq Indians from Nova Scotia in 1834, when he was just five years old. Brought up to believe he was a member of the tribe, he learned traditional Indian medical practices and was regarded among the Indians as a medicine man. Later, he was reunited with his family and studied with several American doctors and was also regarded as a physician by the white people. Dr. Johnson would appear in many of the company's shows. Along with the company's many shows and performers, they also published a variety of books and pamphlets to promote their products independently. With subjects of Indian life and lore, these publications included titles such as Encyclopedia of Valuable Information, a 32-page pamphlet published in 1894, Life and Scenes Among the Kickapoo Indians, a 176-page illustrated book in 1900, The Kickapoo Doctor, a 32-page pamphlet in 1890, and others. Kickapoo Indian Medicine Show continued into the 1920s when its white owners sold out for almost half a million dollars. However, other medicine shows continued for the next two decades. The last of these traveling shows was the Hadakal Caravan, which marketed a tonic called Hadakal, known for both its alleged curative powers and its high alcohol content. Primarily making appearances in the South, the show was known for its notable music acts and Hollywood celebrities. The caravan came to a sudden halt in 1951, when the Hadakal Enterprise fell apart in a scandal. Today, Many medicines from the patent medicine era still survive, including anison, anodin, Bayer aspirin, Bromo seltzer carters, little pills, Doan's pills, Fletcher's castoria, Geritol, and others. There are also a number of products that once made medicinal claims and were once marketed as patent medicines. Though their ingredients have changed, they are still on the market. These include products such as 7-Up, Angostura bitters, Coca-Cola, tonic water, and others. When I came up with the notion for my new book, Things New and Strange, of connecting my South Georgia home to the Smithsonian collections, I had no idea it would lead me to giant ground sloths. But I would learn that connections, no matter how arcane, demanded to be followed, and the learning that resulted was part of the process. I was on a journey during which a fossilized giant ground sloth would lead me to a new understanding of myself and our world. From the SmithsonianMag.com, a story by G. Wayne Clough, a giant sloth mystery brought me home to Georgia. It turns out that nobody even knew giant ground sloths existed until a fellow named Manuel Torres found one in 1788 in Argentina. Its fossilized bones were sent to the Natural History Museum of Madrid, where they were assembled to show what the creature might have looked like. It was big, as big as a grown elephant, and no one, including scientists, had ever seen anything like it before. In fact, there had been nothing like it in Europe or Asia because these unusual animals were native to the Americas. It would take a contrarian to sort out the new creature, and he was a French scientist named Georges Cuvier. Cuvier was controversial for advancing the fact that species could go extinct, some suddenly, and their existence could later be proven using fossils. Even though Cuvier had earned his spurs by careful work, most of his fellow scientists did not support his idea. When he saw drawings of the newly discovered Argentinian fossil, Cuvier concluded it fit his theory and that it was a species of giant ground sloth that had gone extinct. One of the keys to Cuvier's identification was the animal's big claws, which resembled those of the smaller sloths that could still be found in the tropical forests of South America. Many people disagreed with him, but he was eventually proved right. Cuvier named the fossil Megatherium americanum. 
Soon after the discovery of the Argentinian Megatherium, giant ground sloths were given an unexpected boost in popularity when a large claw and some limb bones of another one were found in the United States. According to Smithsonian historian Silvio Bedini, they were given to an avid amateur paleontologist who presented a paper in 1797 to the American Philosophical Society. It was titled, A Memoir of the Discovery of Certain Bones of an Unknown Quadruped of the Clawed Kind in the Western Part of Virginia. That amateur paleontologist happened to be Thomas Jefferson, who was Vice President of the United States at the time. Jefferson's specimen was smaller than the Argentinian Megatherium and from a different genus, but it was still a large sloth. It was given the formal name of Megalonyx, and later it was granted the type species name Jeffersoni in honor of the man who introduced it to the world. Jefferson must have been proud of this distinction, but his political opponents taunted him as Mr. Mammoth for spending time on his beloved fossil collection when they felt he should have been working on matters of state. Although Jefferson was ahead of his time in many ways, he was among those who did not believe in QVA's extinction theory. He even went so far as to advise Lewis and Clark to be on the lookout for live megalonics on their historic voyage of discovery. The Smithsonian's Brian Huber, who at the time headed the paleobiology department, wanted my visit to begin in the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History Dinosaur Hall, where the sloth was on view, so that I could first see a giant sloth as a completed whole. The exhibition closed in 2014 for renovations, and will reopen June 8th under the name the David H. Koch National Fossil Hall, Deep Time. Then he took me into the museum's paleontological collections to see some of the spare parts. The giant sloth skeleton on display was actually only partly authentic, since it was constructed using skeletal remains that were incomplete. Plaster parts made to look like the real thing completed the skeleton, and it is here that South Georgia enters the equation. Leaving the hall, we made our way through several floors containing hundreds of large collection cabinets. The dim halls are only fully lit when in use. We walked into a central area where paleontologist David Bohaska had arrayed a selection of bones on a metal table. Among the odd joints and leg bones was the lower jawbone of a large creature with molars about 20 times bigger than those of a human. The collection tags were yellowed with age and indicated the remains had been classified as those of a megatherium and had been obtained from Skidaway Island by Dr. J.P. Saravan. This fossil find was important to science not just because it was an intact jawbone of the creature, but also because it was the first to show that the megatherium had existed in North America. Hang on to this thought, because it turns out there's more to this story. While we were viewing the fossil bones, I noted that Skidaway was probably Skidaway, an island that is almost a suburb of Savannah, Georgia. I had visited it several times during my tenure as president of Georgia Tech because it has a marine station that university scientists use as a base for research. I felt sure my conclusion because the state park on the island has a small museum that features an exact copy of the Natural History Museum's giant ground sloth. The fossil was from South Georgia, and it was an important one since it firmly established the presence of the genus Megatherium, which had previously been unknown in the United States. However, as would turn out to be the case more than a few times in my search, what seemed to be a done deal was not done at all. First, there was the word Skidaway on the collection tag. Could it be more than a simple case of misspelling? Then, Huber told me that what was written on the collection tag as the genus of the specimen reflected the state of the art at the time. More recently, changes had been made in the classification of giant ground sloths. As a result, Huber said, the Georgia fossil was most likely an eremotherium, not a megatherium, as the collector had thought. Most people who wander into a museum to look at fossils for fun would have a hard time noticing any difference between the eremo and mega sloths, but to experts, significant differences exist. The two were similar in size, but according to the British paleontologist Darren Nash, 
The former genus, Ermotherium, is characterized by a shallower maxilla with reduced hypsodony of the upper teeth compared to the latter species. I had no idea what reduced hypsodony is, but I learned that the Ermotherium was the North American descendant of the South American Megatherium. The two began to separate into different species some three million years ago when a group of adventurous megas moved north across the newly formed land bridge between North and South America, which later became known as the Isthmus of Panama. This movement of species from South America to North America and vice versa is known among the paleontologists as the Great American Biotic Interchange, but it was an unequal exchange. The creatures that headed south from North America were typically more successful than those going north, so what would become our giant sloth, the Ermotherium, was an exception. As to the South Georgia collector who misidentified the fossil remains in the 1800s, we can't absolve him, because the difference between the two species was not understood until 1948. When I reviewed the documentation in the fossil records with the help of the Smithsonian Archives, I found that the jawbone originally had been donated in 1842 to an organization called the National Institute for the Promotion of Science in Washington, D.C. The Smithsonian Institution did not open its doors until 1846, but it soon eclipsed the National Institute, which folded in the 1850s and gave its collections, including the fossil from Skidaway Island, to the Smithsonian. To find out about the collector, I did an online search for J.P. Seravan and found a number of people with that name, but none seemed to fit the bill. Related names did keep popping up, however, namely Dr. J.P. Screven or Scraven. Regardless of the spelling, these references pointed to a man who had lived in Savannah about the same time as the fossil discovery. I located a 1913 source in the Chatham County Archives by William Harden about Screven. According to Hardin, Dr. James Proctor Screven, who was born in 1799 in Bluffton, South Carolina, came from a family with deep roots in the area. He had relatives who fought in the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, and the Indian Wars of Andrew Jackson. Family members operated rice plantations in the area, but Screven was cut from a different cloth than most of his contemporaries, and he chose to attend medical school at the University of Pennsylvania. After receiving his degree in 1820, Screven was supported by his father for two years while he lived first in England and then in France to observe the medical practices in different countries. While in Europe, he spent time studying geology and natural science as a matter of personal interest. It was an enlightened era when scientists were in high pursuit of discoveries. New developments were frequently announced, leading to improved understanding of mountain building, the effects of glaciation, and the evolution of species. After he returned to the United States, Screven set up a medical practice in 1822 in Savannah, but he kept up his interest in science and history. An 1846 memoir written by William Hodgson provided the details of Screven's involvement with fossils. Hodgson reported that Screven was a friend of another medical doctor in Savannah, John C. Habersham, who was an avid fan of fossils and antiquities. According to Hodgson, in 1823, Screven and Habersham were invited by a plantation owner named Stark to examine fossil bones that were exposed at a low tide in a soil bank adjacent to a tidal pond on his property. Hodgson stated that the plantation was on Skidaway Island, confirming my hypothesis. Screven and Habersham acquired a set of fossil bones from the plantation, and after Screven had studied them, he identified them as a species of megatherium. He moved quickly, reporting his findings to the Georgia Medical Society in 1823. Poor Habersham may have gotten the short end of the stick in this business, since it would turn out that he was by far the more committed of the two to paleontology. Regardless, Screven's paper provided the documentation that he was the donor of the fossils to the National Institute. Seravan was a misspelling on the specimen tag. Screven's interests soon moved away from fossils and toward his medical practice, and in 1835 to full-time work on his inherited South Carolina and Georgia land holdings and rice plantations. But rather than living a life of leisure, he moved to downtown Savannah and set about doing all he could to improve the city. 
Serving as an alderman and eventually mayor, he's credited with developing a clean water system, a gas supply system, and the public schools of Savannah. He died in 1859. We don't know much about what Screven did with the fossil bones after he identified them as megatherium in 1823. But in 1842, he presented drawings of them to a meeting of the National Institute for the Promotion of Science in Washington, D.C. Soon, he also donated the fossils to the organization, a gift that I confirmed through the Smithsonian Archives with the help of Smithsonian historian Pam Henson. She also tracked down an article in the National Intelligencer dated September 9, 1842, which contained a letter from Screven to the National Institute for the Promotion of Science. I have this day shipped three boxes of fossil remains to your address, care of William Habersham of Baltimore. The bones in the upper part of the box, the largest one, are fragments of the bones of the extinct animal called by comparative anatomists Megatherium. These remains of the Megatherium were found by Dr. J.C. Habersham and myself on Skidaway Island, 14 miles southeast of Savannah. A corresponding member, Dr. E. Foreman, wrote... This institution has received greatly a noble donation from Dr. J.P. Screven of Savannah, Georgia, consisting of his entire collection of gigantic remains of the Megatherium, which belonged to an extinct race of animals, discovered by him on the coast of Georgia many years ago, and for the first time in North America. While it would be about a hundred years before these fossil bones were identified as Ermotherium, at least one scientist recognized their distinction from megatherium early on. Joseph Leedy, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania and a collaborator with the Smithsonian, named them Megatherium Mirabile in the 1855 Smithsonian Contributions to Knowledge series. In his brief biography of Screven, Hardin reported that after being moved to the Smithsonian when the Institute for the Promotion to Science closed its doors, the fossils were lost in a fire. Fortunately, at least some of the important parts of the collection were spared, because I saw them myself. The following is not an urban legend. It is not a modern myth of nameless and faceless characters with vague details. What happened was quite real and tragic. It is a mystery that has fascinated both paranormal and conventional researchers alike. The Curious Case of Elise Lam. Elise Lam, whose Cantonese name was Lam Ho Yi, was born on April 30, 1991. She was the daughter of Chinese immigrants David and Yina Lam and a student at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. In January of 2013, she traveled to Los Angeles alone, visited regular tourist attractions, and checked in the Cecil Hotel on January 28th. She was reported missing on January 31st after failing to contact her family in Canada. Three days before, she was moved from a shared hostel-style room into a single private room due to exhibiting what her roommate had described as odd behavior. On February 19th, nearly five weeks after her disappearance, the body of Elise Lam was found floating in one of the Cecil Hotel's thousand-gallon water tanks. The tanks were used to distribute water to the hotel, and after guests started complaining about discolored and foul-smelling and tasting water, hotel personnel made the grim discovery. Her clothing and belongings were floating beside her. A Haunting History the Cecil Hotel had already had its share of macabre occurrences. It has been nicknamed the Suicide, in reference to the dozens of individuals who've taken their own lives there. The reputation of the hotel is so widespread that it's since been renamed and rebranded as the Stay on Main. The Cecil has been the setting of an array of violent and tragic happenings. The first recorded suicide on the premises was in 1931, when a man named W.K. Norton was found dead in his room, having ingested poison. Since its opening in 1927, over a dozen deaths have occurred at the Cecil Hotel, including a woman who, not knowing she was pregnant, 
gave birth to a baby boy and proceeded to toss the newborn out of the hotel room window. Murders and suicides were not the only dark things that have happened at the hotel. Richard Ramirez, the serial killer known as the Night Stalker, is thought to have stayed at the Cecil Hotel while engaging in his killing spree in Los Angeles. Another lesser-known serial killer, Jack Underweger, the Austrian man who was caught, imprisoned, and then released in 1990 after having thought to be rehabilitated, stayed at the Cecil Hotel in 1991, where he strangled three prostitutes to death. It's even said that Elizabeth Short, the subject of the still-unsolved Black Dahlia murder, was drinking at the Cecil just days before she was killed. The Elevator Video The last record of Lam alive is as disturbing as it is perplexing. A surveillance video shows Lam in an elevator at the Cecil Hotel. In the video footage, Elise can be seen stepping in and out of an elevator, apparently speaking to someone, and in some instances appears to be hiding. She waves her arms, moves to and fro and side to side. She seems frantic, confused, and afraid. Even more strange, the elevator itself seems to be mysteriously malfunctioning as she pushes the button several times to no avail. The video footage was released by the police prior to the discovery of Lom's body after having no leads in her disappearance. It has since been the subject of much paranormal speculation and a host of conspiracy theories. Some even suggest the footage was doctored or created to cause misdirection in the case. The Unexplained Much is still left unresolved regarding the death of Elise Lam. It is still not known how she got to the roof of the hotel or entered the water tank. The hotel staff would use large ladders to examine the inside of the tanks, and it would have been near impossible for an individual to climb the tank alone. The lid of the tank would have been difficult for her to open, not to mention the fact that she would have had to pass through a locked and alarmed door to the roof. She was naked when she was found, yet no other evidence of foul play was discovered. The autopsy report suggested that her death was accidental, but it was later changed to say that her cause of death was undetermined. There is also the issue of what exactly is occurring in the elevator footage. It seems probable that she could be hiding from an individual whom she suspects will do her harm. However, her odd behavior seems to counter this idea along with the fact that she never telephoned the police for help. Was she interacting with someone outside the view of the camera? Was she having a psychotic episode? Another odd feature of this case is the eerie similarities to the 2005 horror movie Dark Water, a remake of a 2002 Japanese film. The movie tells the story of a young girl, Natasha, who drowns in the water tank of an apartment building. Her body is not immediately discovered, and her death remains a mystery. Her spirit then haunts new tenants of the apartment, who eventually discover the young girl's body. The coincidences only become more disturbing. The mother and daughter who move into the apartment after Natasha's death are named Dahlia and Cecilia. Is this perhaps a prophetic reference to the Cecil Hotel and the murders which made it famous? There is a scene in the movie of the child gaining access to a rooftop door which was supposed to be locked, and scenes of the ghosts of the dead specifically manifesting in the elevator of the apartment. Both Natasha and Cecilia are in red, hooded coats, similar to the one Elise Lam can be seen wearing in the elevator footage. Theories Many alternative theories have been formed regarding the death of Elise Lam. Some are plausible, such as the idea that Lam was pursued by an individual intent on harming her to whom she inevitably fell victim. Some are much more extraordinary, such as the idea that Lam was haunted by a vengeful spirit of one of the hotel's many victims, much like in the movie Dark Water. Perhaps it was this wraith that Lam hid from in the elevator. One theory involves a tuberculosis outbreak which was occurring near the Cecil Hotel at the time of Elise Lam's disappearance. It is the name of the specific test for tuberculosis that raises questions. The Lam Elisa Tuberculosis Test Kit. According to this theory, Elise Lam was the victim of a controlled TB outbreak. Supposedly, she was infected with the disease, 
killed and her body was deposited into the Cecil Hotel water tank as a means of distributing the disease to others. But why would anyone want to spread TB? The Lyme ELISA test was found to only be capable of detecting a little over 50% of tuberculosis cases and was only useful in detecting a specific form of TB. It is thought that Elise was used to infect others with a form of TB that could be detected by the Lyme ELISA test in order to increase sales of the test, vaccines, and medicines that could then be administered to prevent or cure it. The Lyme ELISA test seems to have been developed prior to 2009. Was this a long con plot by the Illuminati? Another, more otherworldly theory is that Elise Lam was playing the elevator game. This game, which seems to have originated in Korea, involves the systematic pressing of elevator buttons in a building of at least 10 stories. If the buttons are pressed in the correct sequence and all the directions are followed, one finds themselves getting off at the 10th floor of the building and stepping foot into another dimension. One aspect of the elevator game is a woman, presumably from the other world, who will board the elevator as well and has the potential to harm or even kill. Was it this otherworldly woman that Elise was hiding from, frantically pressing elevator buttons in an attempt to re-enter her own universe? Conclusion Elise Lam's odd behavior may have been caused by drugs prescribed to her for anxiety and depression. Lam was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and had been prescribed Welbutrin, Lamotrigine, Quadipine, and Effexor. The contents of her social media accounts, while once cheerful, began to reflect her ever-growing emotional struggle. She could have been under the influence of hallucinogenic drugs or a sleeping aid, which could account for her bizarre behavior in the elevator. Yet no trace of drugs were found during her post-mortem. While researchers may never know what happened to Elise Lam that day, the case continues to inspire tellers of macabre stories and obsess paranormal investigators and internet would-be detectives. One can only hope that those individuals remember that this was not a story of fantasy, but one that happened to a real young woman whose tragedy still looms in the heavy hearts of her friends and family. I've made many things that I'm very proud of. I've made some things from scratch and others from scraps. I've found eyes that had so much more to see and popped them in new faces. I've taken dusty fingers from a child's grave and made them into a warrior. I've polished long dead teeth and built a shimmering grin. I don't need eyes or fingers or teeth, mind you, but it makes things easier. While I would love to tell the story of all these pieces and the people they turned into, I have another story to tell. This is the story of the time I found a heart. Never before had I been so fortunate to find a heart. If you were to ask me back then, I wouldn't have even been able to tell you where to start a search for a spare heart. People are so fond of them, and they're almost always in use. It's a shame. A lot of those people don't realize what a peculiar gift it is to have that little thing ticking away in their chest. I was just out of my apprenticeship at the time, only skilled enough to make simple things like the occasional mouse, but with my newly acquired freedom, I had license to build without restraint. My head was so full of new ideas that I nearly stepped on the dusty old thing. It was just lying in the dirt, in the gutter if you can believe it. I surely couldn't believe it myself. It just looked like a dirty old sack or maybe a rotten fruit. At first, I rode the high that came with my discovery, but the elation curdled into a soggy mess of self-deprecation. In fact, I felt more guilty than anything. There were other makers much more deserving than I, but before I could doubt myself too much, the tired thing was already in my bag. I had a secret, and that was its own kind of treasure. That night, I spirited away to my room without dinner and lit a single lantern to avoid too much attention. It really didn't look too bad once it was cleaned and patched up. The whole night as I repaired and prepped it, my mind raced with possibilities. 
It could turn into virtually anyone that could do virtually anything. It is a very dangerous thing to be given a heart. You know, no pressure. Now, I understand that not every story needs to have a moral, but perhaps this is a parable of earnestness. If I had asked for help or advice, maybe things wouldn't have gone the way that they did. I don't regret it, but I wonder what a different fate would have looked like. Creations, primarily people, are masters of cruelty by day one. It is the nature of a free will to tend towards depravity. It is also the nature of free will to be afforded the chance to rise above. That is what I was taught, at least. It took a little over a week of concentration, tinkering, and seclusion to finish. Pieces never fit right the first time. Seams aren't tight enough. Joints squeak. It can be a really huge mess if you don't keep your head on straight. And let me tell you, heads never go on straight. Imperfections are expected, though. They're like the witness marks in a clock. After hours and hours of adjustments and fabrication, I finally stepped back. Maybe it was the proportions or the coloring. It might have been the overall shape or the way it moved, but something was off. Something was just not quite right, which was somehow worse than it being completely wrong. It was squat and oddly shaped. Its internals must have been just as bad because, despite its best efforts, it could not speak. With a grimace, it would open and close its mouth in vaguely familiar ways, but all that would come out were long strings of ahs and oohs. It was, by all intents and purposes, an undeniable failure. But it already had my affection. It had my heart. Instantly, I fell in love with it. I wanted to parade it about. Maybe the others would think it was cute in its own way. I was just about to present it, but a realization stopped me in my tracks. If they were to know that I made a human, it would be forced to live with the others of its kind. It's the way things go. Creations were not pets, but confiscation was not an option. The other humans would revile it as a monster, they would eat it alive. They would burn its bones and curse the ashes. A heart so precious deserves more than curses and flames. So I hid it. While it couldn't have the power of a maker, it could learn like one. It watched with burning blue eyes at my every move. Its curious fingers traced over objects, testing their texture and weight. In nearly every moment, I could catch it dazed in fascination. One day, I let it watch me work. This is going to be a bird, I explained. It doesn't look like one now, but it will eventually. Stuff has to start simple, then you can make it more complex. It's tricky. It fumbled its hand into a basket of down. Those are feathers, down specifically. We're going to need a lot. Essentially, I gestured to the bean-shaped figure on my desk. We need to cover this whole thing with that. You can play with it for now, though. I didn't necessarily need to give it permission as it was already tossing small fistfuls of the fluff into the air. Its choked-up laugh crackled in its chest, and all I could do was smile. Words wouldn't do justice to moments like that, but a smile felt right. I was never really sure how much I could actually teach it, in all honesty. If all it learned was how to smile, though, that'd be alright. That'd be okay. The bird was a quick job, but I saved the heart for last. I built that one, no hand-me-down hearts that time. Before I installed the beating muscle, I gestured it over. A heart, I said, pointing at my handiwork. It's the engine that keeps things like birds alive. Not just birds, though. Lots of things have hearts. It was already pointing to its chest, beating me to the punch. Yes, that's just what I was about to say. You have a heart too, but yours is special. I didn't make yours like I did with this one. I popped the heart into the J, and for a while it just laid there. It looked back and forth between the bird and I. I made a just wait kind of gesture, then pointed back at the feathered creature. 
The bird drew its first, almost imperceptible breath, but it didn't notice. The lungful was too small, too shallow, but with the next inhale, I nearly thought it would burst with astonishment. Its dumbstruck face turned into a bold smile, all teeth and gums. All the things that made it human was in that smile, and for the first time, I was certain that it would die. Among the many things that make my job stressful, death has to be one of the hardest. Everything wears down after a while, and some makers deal with that better than others. None of us ever want our creations to die, but they have to. The reality that they will die is really the only motivation they have to keep living sometimes. I wasn't so bothered when my mice were trapped or eaten by predators, and I didn't even blink when people squashed my bugs. Something was different about it. I've always heard how precious a heart was, but no one ever mentioned how fragile they could be. It picked up the bird in both hands. Careful, you might break it. Over the next couple weeks, it became restless. Being confined to my workshop, even when I wasn't there, had to be boring, admittedly. I would catch it in the corner of my eye, staring out the window at all the people milling about, and I would try to offer a distraction. Look, the cow's done. That worked for a while, but it wanted more than I could offer. It wanted to enjoy other creations, not just mine. It didn't even have experiences of other places to be able to miss them. It only knew those four walls, and I could see its light begin to fade. The spark in its eye fizzled to a dull glimmer. Maybe I should have realized sooner, but I had robbed it of something so fundamental. The chance. I had been so scared it would be rejected that I never even gave it a chance to be accepted. The chance to overcome. It couldn't tell me that's what it was missing, but I knew. I met it at the window. Lots of people out, huh? It gave a tired smile. You know that you're like them, right? The people. You're a person just like they are. With a flick of an eyebrow, it spun its face my way, and I just nodded. Yep, you have arms and legs and a brain and even a heart, just like them. I could see gears turning in its head, processing the revelation. They are really impressive, honestly. They build things too, just like us, but they destroy things too. Sometimes they hurt things, even kill them, if they're different. Not always, mind you, but sometimes. You and I are different in that way. I can only make things. I can't break things like they can. It peered out the window with fresh, moist eyes. That was the first time I saw it cry. It wiped him away in embarrassment. It's okay to cry. They cry too. They cry when they're happy. They cry when they're sad. Well, now that I think about it, they cry all the time. I laugh, and it echoes me. The room is quiet for a moment, and I can hear it breathing. I wish for more than anything to know what it was thinking. You want to go with them, don't you? It stepped from the window and stared at its feet. After a while, it shrugged. It's okay if you do. People deserve to be with other people, I said, trying to stay as nonchalant as possible. I didn't want it to feel like it had to stay just to save my feelings. Again, the room fell quiet, as it thought, and again, it gave another shrug. Well, then what are we waiting for? I had to make it quick before I second-guessed myself. It seemed a little alarmed at first with my abruptness, but quickly caught an excited air. I was setting a ship to sail on its maiden voyage, having no clue as to its degree of seaworthiness. Soon, we were peering through dense foliage at a small enclave of men and women. It seemed, understandably, nervous. If you go, I can't take you back, I said, trying to keep a light tone. And I can't promise that things will always be what you expect. That can be a good thing, though. It didn't shift its gaze, but slowly curled its knotted hand around a couple of my fingers and squeezed. It's okay to be scared, too. It squeezed a little tighter, but I knew that it would be leaving. Again, it's the nature of people to take chances, to jump into a sea of possibilities without knowing if they'll ever reach shore. 
It was born of a chance after all, a second-hand heart. It didn't look back when it finally made up its mind. It smiled, though, just like I taught it. I savored the small seconds between seconds when that hand rested in mine, but I was not the one to let go. It was, which is how things should be. It needed something I never had and could never give. As expected, they hated it at first glance. The chaos started with a scream from the first person to see it. Men emptied from the surrounding houses to see what the commotion was about, and they looked in horror at the stumbling, misshapen it. Without hesitation, they descended upon him, rocks and blades. It was helpless. It had a heart born from brokenness, and I still wonder to this day if I was wrong. I told it that it was like other people in the fact that they could destroy and I could not. In that moment, I wasn't so sure about that anymore, because I was and am convinced that it would never, could never lift a finger to harm another soul. Like a pack of sharks on a bleeding fish, the crowd scrambled to tear it into pieces. The ones that couldn't join the orgy wailed in bloody ecstasy. In minutes, it was indistinguishable as ever being a human. A shaman from the town approached and snatched its still-beating heart from the pile of viscera before parading down the street with the entire congregation on his coattails. The pack marched to an altar of stone. As gently as one might lay down a child, the shaman positioned the sacrifice appropriately for all to see. The shaman looked stoically upon the crowd, then announced the heart as a gift in my name. They screamed for me and my mercy. They danced and cried, and I accepted the offering. The organ steamed in the cool breeze of the evening. Being handed such a thing so flippantly, what did they think I would do with it? Why would I squander it on another vessel just for it to be cut down? I thought it so tragic less because it was gone, and more so because it is a very dangerous thing to be given a heart. That concludes this episode of the Curseland Podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you all enjoyed. As always, if you've got a story you'd like to hear on the show or any other feedback, please email feedback at curse.land. The show is also on Twitter at curseland, so you can message me on there if you prefer. Till next time, I'll talk to you all later.